Mahmoud, Aleppo, Syria, 2015, starts on page 49. Through the huge hole that used to be the wall in, of his apartment, Mahmoud saw gray-white clouds from missile strikes blooming all around. He shook his head, trying to clear the ringing, and spied his little brother. Walid was sitting right where he had been before the attack, on the floor in front of the TV. Only the TV wasn't there anymore. It had fallen five stories to the ground below, along with the outside wall, and Walid was centimeters from joining them both. Walid, don't move, Mohammed cried. Mumam. He hurried across the room, his ankles turning painfully on broken bits of wall. Walid sat, sat still as a statue and he looked like one. He was covered with a fine gray powder from head to foot, like he'd taken a bath in dry concrete mix. Mahmoud finally reached him, snatching him up and away from the cliff's edge that used to be their wall. Walid, Walid, are you okay? Mahmoud asked, turning to him. Walid's eyes were alive but empty. Walid, talk to me. Are you all right? Walid finally looked up at him. You're bleeding, was all he said. Mahmoud, Walid, their mother cried. She staggered to the door of her bedroom, Hannah crying in her arms. Oh, thank goodness, you're, oh God, you're alive, their mom said. She dropped to her knees and pulled them both into a hug. Mahmoud's heart was racing, his ears still buzzed, and his shoulders burned, but they were alive. They were all alive. He felt tears come to his eyes and wipe them away. The floor beneath their feet groaned and shifted. We have to get out of here, Mahmoud's mother said, putting Hannah in Mahmoud's arms. Go, go, take your brother and your sister. I'll be right behind you. I have to grab a few things. Mom, no, go, she told Mahmoud, pushing them all towards the door. Mahmoud clutched Hannah with one arm and took his brother's hand. He dragged Walid with him towards the front door, but Walid pulled back. What about my action figures? Walid asked. He looked over his shoulder like he wanted to go for them. We'll buy new ones, Mahmoud told him. We have to get out of here. Across the hall, the Sari family filled the corridor. Mother, father, and twin daughters, both younger than Walid, What's happened, Mr. Sarif asked Mahmoud, and then he saw the missing wall, and his eyes went wide. The building's been hit, Mahmoud said. We have to get out. Mr. and Mrs. Sarif hurried back to their apartment, and Mahmoud cried, carried Hannah down the stairs, pulling White Walid behind them. Halfway to the ground, the building shifted again, and the concrete stairs broke away from the wall, leaving a five-centimeter crack. Mahmoud grabbed the railing to steady himself and waited a long, breathless moment to see if the stairs were going to collapse. When they didn't, he ran the rest of the way down and burst onto the street, Hannah still in his arms and his brother right behind them. Rubble was strewn everywhere, missiles and bombs thudded nearby, close enough to shake loose parts of the wall. A building shuddered and collapsed, smoke and debris avalanching out to the streets. Mahmoud jumped when it fell, but Walid stood still like this kind of thing happened every day.
With a jolt of surprise, Mahmoud realized this thing did happen every day, just not to them until now. Everywhere around them, people fled into the streets covered in gray dust and blood. No sirens rang. No ambulances came to help the wounded. No police cars or emergency crews hurried to the scene. There weren't any left. Mahmoud stared up at the building. The whole front had collapsed, and Mahmoud felt like he was looking into a giant dollhouse. Each floor had a living room and a kitchen just like theirs, all decorated differently. The building groaned again, and the kitchen on the top floor began to tip towards the street. It collapsed into the sixth floor and into Mahmoud's apartment and on down like dominoes. Mahmoud barely had time to yell, run, and drag Walid and his sister away before the whole... Mahmoud barely had time to yell, run, and drag Walid and his sister away before the whole building came crashing down into the street, thundering like a jet fighter. Safe on the sidewalk across the street, clutching Hannah and Walid, Mahmoud suddenly realized his mother had still been in the building. Mom, mom, Mahmoud yelled. Mahmoud, Walid, he heard his mother cry, and she came out from behind the pile of rubble with the Sari family, all of them covered in gray dust. She ran towards Mahmoud and embraced him, Walid and Hannah. We went at out the back stairs, he told them, and just in time, Mahmoud looked up and where his apartment had been, it wasn't there anymore. His home was totally destroyed. What would they do now? Where would they go? Mahmoud's mother was carrying their school backpacks and she traded them for Hannah. Mahmoud couldn't understand why his mother had bothered to save their backpacks until he saw that they were stuffed with clothes and diapers. She had gone back for whatever she could take from the apartment. Everything they owned was in these two backpacks. I can't reach your father, Mahmoud's mother said, thumbing her phone. There's no service again. Mahmoud's father was an engineer at a mobile phone company. If the phones were out, he was probably working on trying to fix them. But what if his father had been hit by one of the bombs? Mahmoud's stomach twisted into knots, just thinking about it. But then there, his dad was running down the street towards them, and Mahmoud felt like he could fly. Fatima, Mahmoud, Walid, Hannah, his father cried. He wrapped them all in a hug and kissed little Hannah on the forehead. Thank God you're all alive, he cried. Dad, our house is gone, Mahmoud told him. What do we do? What should we have what we should have done a long time ago? We're leaving Aleppo now. I parked the car nearby. We can be in Turkey by tomorrow. We can sell the car there and take away take our way north to Germany. Everyone stopped by Mahmoud's father walked ahead. Germany, Mahmoud's mother said. Mahmoud felt as stunned as his mother sounded Germany. He remembered the map of the world that hung in his classroom. Germany was somewhere up north in the heart of Europe. He couldn't imagine traveling that far. Just for a little while, Mahmoud's father said, I saw on the TV they're accepting refugees. We can stay there until this is all over, until we could come back home. It's cold in Germany, Mahmoud said. Do you want to build a snowman? His father sang. They had seen Frozen in a movie theater back when they could go to the now government-controlled side of the city that had theaters. 
Yusuf, Mumad's mom, mom warned. Mahmoud's dad looked sheepishly. I don't have to be a snowman. This is serious, Mom said. I know we've been talking about leaving, but now, like this, we are going to pack, plan, buy tickets, book hotel rooms. All we have now are two backpacks and our phones. Germany is a long way away. How will we get there? By car first, Mahmoud's father struggled. Then boat, by train, by bus, on foot? I don't know. What choice do we have? Our home is destroyed. Were you able to get the cash we put away? Mahmoud's mother nodded, but she was clearly still worried. So we have money. We will buy tickets as we go. More importantly, we have our lives. But if we stay in Aleppo a day longer, we may not even have that. Mahmoud's father looked at his wife, to Hannah, to Mahmoud, to Walid. We've spent too much time talking about it and not doing anything. It's not safe here. It hasn't been for months, years. We should have gone long ago. Ready or not, if we want to live, we have to leave Syria. That was page 55. Joseph, somewhere on the Atlantic Ocean, 1939, six days from home. Ruthie skipped ahead of Joseph along the sunny promenade deck, happier than he'd ever seen her before. And why not? The MS St. Louis was a paradise. Banned from movie theaters in Germany because she was a Jew, Ruthie had seen her first cartoon on board during movie night and loved it, even if it was followed by the newsreel with Hitler yelling about Jews. Three times a day, they ate delicious meals in the dining room laid out with white linen tablecloths, crystal glasses, and shining silverware. The stewards waited on them hand and foot. They had played shuffleboard and badminton, and the crew was putting up a swimming pool, which they promised would fill with seawater once the St. Louis hit the warm Gulf Stream. Everyone in the crew had treated Joseph and his family with kindness and respect, despite his father's repeated warnings that all Germans were out to get them. In five days, Papa hadn't come out of his cabin once, not even for meals, and Joseph's mother had barely left his side. And the crew wasn't just being nice because they didn't know Joseph and his family were Jews. No one wore their Jewish armbands on the ship, and there were no J's above any of the passengers' compartments because all the passengers were Jews, all 908 of them. They were all going to Cuba to escape the Nazis, and now that they were finally away from the threats and the violence that followed them everywhere in Germany— there was singing and dancing and laughter. Two girls around Ruthie's age wearing matching flowery dresses were leaning over the railings and giggling. Joseph and Ruthie went over to see what they were doing. One of the girls had found a long piece of string and was dangling it over the side, tickling the noses of passengers who were sleeping on the chairs down on a deck. Their current victim kept batting his nose like there was a fly on it. He bopped his nose hard enough to jerk away, and Ruthie laughed hysterically. The girls yanked up the string, and they all dropped to the deck behind the rail where the man couldn't see them laughing. I'm Joseph, he told the other girls when they didn't all when they'd all gathered themselves together. And this is Ruthie. Joseph just turned thirteen, Ruthie told the girls. He's going to have his bar mitzvah next Shabbos. A bar mitzvah was a ceremony at which a boy officially became a man under Jewish law. It was usually 
held on the first Shabbos, the Sabbath, the Jewish day of rest, after a boy's 13th birthday. Joseph couldn't wait for his bar mitzvah. If there's enough people, Joseph reminded his sister. I'm Renata Abba, said the older of the two girls, and this is Eveline. They were sisters, and amazingly, they were traveling alone. Our father is waiting for us in Cuba, Renata told them. Where's your mama, Ruthie asked. She wanted to stay in Germany, Evelyn said. Joseph could tell it wasn't something they were comfortable talking about. Hey, I know some fun, something funny we can do, he told them. It was a trick he and Klaus had played on Air Meyer once upon a time. Thinking about Klaus made Joseph think about other things, but he blinked away the bad memories. The MS St. Louis had left all that behind. First, Joseph said, we need some soap. Once they had found a bar, Joseph showed them how the soap up, soap up the door handle so that it was slick and it was impossible to turn. They used it on the door handles of cabins up and down the passageway on deck A. They hid around the corner and waited. Soon enough, a steward balancing a large silver tray came down the hall from the other end and knocked on the door. Joseph, Ruthie, Renata, and Eveline had to swallow their snickers as the steward reached down with his free hand and tried and failed to open the door. The steward couldn't see because of the big platter he held, and he fumbled with the knob. He lost his hold on the tray, and the whole thing came crashing down with great clatter. All four of them burst out laughing, and Joseph had Renata and Renata pulled the two younger children away before they could get caught. They collapsed behind one of the lifeboats, panting and giggling. As Joseph dried his eyes, he realized he hadn't played like this. He hadn't laughed like this for many years. Joseph wished they could stay on board the St. Louis forever. Isabel, just outside Havana, Cuba, 1994. This is page 60. The boat was heavy in Is Isabel's arms, and she was afraid of dropping it, even though there were five other people carrying it with her. She and Ivan held the middle of the boat on either side, while Ivan's parents and Isabel's father and grandfather carried the front and back. Senora Castillo, Ivan's mother, was dark-skinned and curvy and wore a white kerchief over her dreadlocks. Isabel's mother, almost nine months pregnant, was the only one not helping to carry the boat. It was big and heavy to begin with, and they were and they packed it with the gas cans, plastic soda bottles filled with fresh water, condensed milk, cheese and bread and medicine. Everything else had been left behind. Nothing was more important than making it to Florida. It was night, and a waning moon pecked out from behind the scattered clouds. A warm breeze lifted Isabel's short curly hair and raised goosebumps on her arms. Fidel Castro had said that anyone who wanted to leave was welcome to go, but that was hours ago. What if he had changed his mind? What if there was a line of police waiting to arrest them at the beach? Isabel hefted the boat to get a better grip and tried to pick up her pace. They left the village's gravel road and hauled the boat over the dunes to the sea. All Isabel could see was the metal side of the boat in front of her face, but she heard a commotion behind her. There were people on the beach, lots of them. She panicked. Her worst fears had come true, and suddenly the blinding light lit up her head, lit her up. Isabel cried out and let go of the boat. 
Ahead of her, Senora Casilla staggered and lost her grip too, and the front of the boat slammed into the stand. Sand. Isabel turned, holding a hand up from her eyes and expecting to see police searchlight shining on her. When she saw what she saw instead was a television camera. You're on CNN, a woman said in Spanish, her face nothing but a silhouette against the light. Can you tell us what made you decide to leave? Quickly, Senora Castilla called from the other side of the boat. Pick it back up. We're almost to the water. I, Isabel was frozen in the bright light of the camera. Do you have any relatives back in Miami that you want to send a message to? The reporter asked. No, we, Isabel, the boat, Poppy called. The others had already lifted up the boat out of the sand and were lurching towards the sound of the crashing waves. The bright lights of the camera swung away from Isabel and lit up what looked like a party on the beach. More than half their village was on the sand, clapping, waving, and cheering on the boats. There were so many boats. Isabel's family had worked in a secret all night with the Castillos, worried someone might hear them, but apparently everybody else had been doing the same thing. There were inflatable rafts, canoes with homemade outriggers, rafts made of inner tubes tied together, boats built out of styrofoam and oil drums, a rickety-looking raft made out of wood, wooden shipping pallets, and inner tubes raised a bed sheet sail as it caught the wind and villagers on the beach cheered. When another raft made out of an old refrigerator sank, everyone laughed. The camera light swung around again, and that's when Isabel saw the police. There was a small group of them up on the rocks overlooking at the inlet. Not nearly as many as there had been in Havana, but enough. Enough to arrest her family for trying to leave Cuba. But these police weren't doing anything. They were just standing and watching. Castro's order to let people leave must have been good. Chabella, her mother called. Chabella, come on. Miami was already in the boat, and Poppy was helping Ivan in. Senora Castillo was trying to get the motor started. Isabel waded into the water. The waves lapped up to the bottom of her shorts. She was almost to Poppy's outstretched arms when she saw her father's eyes go wide. Isabel took back over her looked back over her shoulder. Two of the policemen had broken from the group and were running towards the water, towards them. No, no, they're coming for me, Poppy cried. Isabel fell into the water and swam the rest of the way to the boat, but her father was already climbing over the side. Start the engine, he cried. No, wait for me, Isabel yelled, spitting seawater. She got a hand to the side of the boat and looked back. The two policemen had hit the surface and were running high-legged through the waves. Worse, those other policemen were running too. They were all headed for the Castillo's boat. Hands grabbed Isabel and helped her climb the side of the boat, Ivan, but when he got her aboard, Ivan and his mother then reached their hands out to the two policemen who were tracing them. What were they doing? No, Poppy cried, scrambling as far away from them as he could. Ivan and Senora Castillo grabbed the arms of the two policemen and pulled them on board and they all collapsed into the bottom of the boat. The policemen pulled off their berets, and Isabel recognized one of them instantly. One was Louis and the Castillo's elder son. The other policeman shook out his long hair, and Isabel was startled to realize it wasn't a policeman at all. It was a policewoman. When he looked at Louis's hand, Isabel guessed it was his girlfriend. This 
must have been the Castillo's plan all along for Luis and his girlfriend to run away with them, but they had never told Isabel and her family. Pack! A pistol ran out again over the waves, and the crowd on the beach cried out in panic. The pistol fired again. Pack! And a ping! The hull of the Castillo's boat rang as the bullet hit it. The police were shooting at them, but why? Didn't Castro say that it was right to leave? Isabel's eyes fell on Luis and his girlfriend, and she understood they had been drafted into the police and they weren't allowed to leave. They were deserters, and deserters were shot. The motor coughed to life, and the boat lurched into the wave, spraying Isabel with seawater. The villagers on the beach cheered for them, and Senor Castillo revved up the engine, leaving the charging policemen in their wake. Isabel braced herself between two of the beaches, trying to catch her breath. Two of the benches, trying to catch her breath. It took her a moment to process it, but this was really happening. They were leaving Cuba her village, her home, everything she'd known behind. Isabel's father pitched across the rolling boat and grabbed Senor Castillo by the shirt. What are you playing at, letting them on board, he demanded. What if they follow us? What if they send the Navy boat after us? You put us all in danger. Senora Castillo battled Geraldo Fernandez's arms away. We didn't ask you to come along. It's our gasoline, Isabel's father yelled. They kept arguing, but the engine and the slap of the boat against the waves drowned their words out for Isabel. She wasn't paying attention anymore. All she could think about was the 90 miles they still had to go. The water pouring in from the gunshot hole in the side of the boat. Mahmoud, just outside Aleppo, Syria, 2015, one day from home. This is page 66. Mahmoud's father stopped their Mercedes station wagon for gasoline at the little roadside station north of Aleppo. Walid and Mahmoud sat in the car with their mother while she nursed Hannah under a blanket. Fatima had put on a black long-sleeved dress and a pink flower hijab that covered her head and shoulders. She and Yusuf had agreed she'd cover up more than she usually did in Aleppo in case they ran into stricter Muslims outside of the city. In some places, women were being stoned and killed for not covering up their entire bodies, especially in areas controlled by the Daesh, what the rest of the world called ISIS. Daesh thought they were fighting the final war of the apocalypse, and anyone who didn't agree with their twisted perversion of Islam were infidels who should have had their heads cut off. Mahmoud and his family planned to stay as far away from Daesh as possible, but the radical fighters were coming farther and farther into Syria every day. Mahmoud looked out the dusty car windows as a jet fighter streaked by high above and headed for Aleppo. A mural painted on the side of the gas station showed President Assad, his dark hair cut short and his thin mustache underneath his pointy nose. He wore a suit and a tie in front of the Syrian flag. Doves of peace and yellow shining light surrounded him. A jagged line of real bullet holes bisected Assad's face. Mahmoud's father got back in the car. I've got a route for us, Mom said. She finally had a signal and got Google Maps to open on her iPhone. Mahmoud leaned over to see. This route crosses a country border. 
Google Maps told them, marking the alert with the little yellow triangle. That's what they wanted, to get out of Syria using the fastest path possible. Dad started the engine, put the car into gear, and they were off. An hour later, they were met on the road with four, by four soldiers waving for them to stop. Mahmoud froze. The soldiers might be with the Syrian army or with the Syrian rebels. They could even be Daesh. It was hard to tell anymore. Some of these soldiers were, wore camouflage pants and shirts, but others wore Adidas jerseys and leather jackets and track pants. They all had short black beards like Mahmoud's father and wore headscarves of different colors and patterns. But each of them had an automatic rifle, which was really all that mattered. Your hijab, Dad said quickly. Mahmoud's mother pulled the end of the scarf up over her face so that only her eyes were showing. Mahmoud sank to the floor of the old Mercedes station wagon and tried to disappear in the seat beside him. Walid sat up straight to his open window, unmoving and unfazed. Everybody stay calm, Dad said, slowing the car down, and let me do the talking. One of the soldiers stood in front of the car, his rifle aimed loosely at the windshield, while the others walked around the sides, peering through the windows. The soldiers were silent, and Mahmoud closed his eyes tight, waiting for the shots to come. Sweat ran down his back. I'm just trying to get my family to safety, Dad told the men. One of the men stopped at the driver's side window and pointed his rifle at Mahmoud's father. Which side do you support? The question was a dangerous as dangerous as his gun. The right answer, and they lived. The wrong answer, and they all died. But what was the right answer? Assad and the Syrian army? The rebels? Desh? His dad hesitated, and Mahmoud held his breath. One of the soldiers cocked his rifle. Chachak. It was Walid who spoke up. We're against whoever is dropping the bombs on us, he said. The soldiers laughed, and the other soldiers laughed with him. We're against who's ever dropping the bombs, too. The soldier at the window said, which is usually that dog Assad. Mahmoud breathed in again with relief. Walid didn't know it, but he had saved the day. Where are you going? The soldier at the window asked. North, Dad said, to Azaz. The soldier opened the back door of the car and slid inside, pushing Walid into the back of the station wagon. No, no, you can't go through Azaz, Azaz anymore, the soldier said. The free Syrian army and al-Qaeda are fighting there now. The, next, the door next to Mamad's opened, and one of the soldiers nudged him from the floor into the back with Walid. Two more soldiers crammed themselves into the back seat, and the last one joined Mahmoud and Walid in the back with their backpacks. He was dusty and smelled like he hadn't had a bath in months, and the heat of the road radiated off him and his rifle like a stove. Apparently, they were all coming along for the ride. One of the soldiers in the back seat snatched up mom's iPhone and looked at the route. Use Apple Maps, the other soldier said. No, you idiot. Google Maps is better, said his friend. See here, he told Mahmoud's father. You'll have to go over to Kutma and then north through Kesta Sindo. The rebels in the army and Desh are all fighting here, he said, pointing to places on the map. Many guns and artillery and the Kurds hold all the territory here. Russian airstrikes have hit here and here in support of the Alawite pig Assad, and America drones are attacking Daesh and here and here. Mahmoud's eyes went wide. Everything the soldier was describing stood between them and Turkey. Go back south, one of the soldiers told Mahmoud, father. You can let us off at Highway 214. The soldier with the iPhone scrolled up the map to see their destination. You're going to Turkey. I went to engineering school there, Mahmoud's father said. 
You shouldn't be leaving Syria, said the one of the soldiers. You should stand up for your country, fight the tyrant Assad. Between Assad and the Daesh and Russians and America, Mahmoud thought there wasn't much of Syria left to fight for. I just want my family to be safe, Dad said. My family was killed in an airstrike, one of the soldiers said. Maybe when yours is too, you'll take up arms, but by then it will be too late. Mahmoud remembered the horror he'd felt when his apartment building collapsed and he thought his mom was still inside. The fear he'd felt when they couldn't reach his father. If his parents all had died in an airstrike, would he want revenge on the killers? Instead of running away, should Mahmoud and his father join the rebels and fight to win their country back? Mahmoud's dad kept driving. They were almost to the highway when gunfire erupted nearby. Da, 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 da. The bullets pinged into the car. Mahmoud screamed and dropped to the floor. Broken glass sprayed him. One of the back tires exploded and the car swerved wildly and screeched as his dad fought to keep control of it. Mahmoud and Walid went tumbling and the soldiers in the back rolled on top of them. The soldier had a hole in his head. Mahmoud screamed again and pushed the man away as the car skidded to a stop. Bullets whizzed by and then caught the car again. Ping, ping, ping. And Mahmoud's dad drew open the driver's side door and pulled mom and Hannah out with him. Get out of the car, he cried. The soldiers in the back seat kicked open the door on the left side of the car and spilled outside. More bullets whizzed by overhead, and soon the rebel soldiers who'd been riding with them were returning fire, their automatic rifles booming in Mahmoud's ears like he was in a barrel, and they were beating out the outside with the hammers. All Mahmoud wanted to do was curl up into a ball and disappear, but he knew if he and Walid stayed in the car, they would end up like the dead soldier beside them. He had to get out. Get out, move. His heart was pounding so hard he thought it would burst right out of his chest. But Mahmoud found the courage to grab Walid by the arm, dragging him over the seat and dive headfirst out the door. They tumbled into the ditch beside his parents. Hannah was wailing, but Mahmoud almost couldn't hear her over the sound of the gunfire. Mahmoud's dad waited for a pause in the gunfire, then scrambled back up to the ridge for the car. Yusuf, no, mother cried. What are you doing? Mahmoud's father drew, dove back into the front of the and yanked the iPhone and the charger cord from the Mercedes just as bullets ripped into the car again. He tumbled and slid back into the ditch. Had to go back for the phone, he told them. How else am I going to play Angry Birds? He was joking again. Mahmoud knew they needed their phone to help them get to Turkey. Without maps, they'd be lost. Mahmoud's father waited for another lull in the shooting, and then they all hurried away from the car, leaving everything else they owned behind. <laughs>